This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. The neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at roscoeswetsuitneuro.com. Now here's your host, Toby Passman. All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. We have a special guest with us on the show today, Shaheen Najak. Shaheen, uh, we're going to introduce her in just a moment, but before we do that, uh, Shaheen is going to tell us why we should listen to the episode today. Ah, what a beautiful question. Well, why should you listen to the episode today? Do you want to be on your own side? Being on our own side. Who do we have the most power and control over? Sometimes we think it's those around us, but it really isn't. It's on our future self. And what our future self looks like depends on our, on us. So um, mindfulness brings to light that future self. Who do I want to be? Do I want to be the same person today as I was? As Do I want to be the same person 10 years from now as I am today? Or do I want to change? Do I want to feel differently? Do I want to be slightly different than how I am today? Or do I want that routine life that I'm living right now? So if that appeals to you, tune in. All right. And as you guys may have been able to infer, we are going to be talking about uh, mindfulness meditation. Shaheen is a certified mindfulness meditation coach for parents, teachers, and caregivers who have lost their joy. Shaheen helps her clients release the overwhelm of frustration and exhaustion that can come from caring with others for others. Her passion lies in supporting adults and children, particularly parents and teenagers, in bringing back the spark building better relationships using mindfulness skills to improve self-esteem and self-acceptance. So Shaheen, super excited to have you with us on the show today. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So tell me a little about how you first got introduced to to mindfulness. Can you recall the specific uh, time period or just what, where you were at in your life? Absolutely. So I've been a I've had a practice of meditation for over 20 years. So I would meditate and then I would get on with my day. So that daily living mindfulness wasn't a part of it. And then um, what happened was I went through a divorce that was quite shocking and numbing to my system. And I have two daughters and all of a sudden I was in this midst of um, chaos and what my what my body really needed was calm. And I just did not know how to do this. So um, I started thinking about what do I want for my daughters, right? If they experience chaos in their lives, what do I want for them going in, in their adult lives? And so I thought I would become a coach, a life coach. Maybe they didn't need that parent. Maybe they needed the coach in me. So I became a coach. And during that, during my coaching journey, I started thinking back to what kept me resilient in my life. And during a, doing a little bit of research, I realized that the mindfulness changes the brain. And so it was that that was powerful. And I thought, I have to teach this to my kids but I need to learn the daily mindfulness part for myself other than the formal sitting meditation part of it. 
So I started learning about it. And I, as I started incorporating it into my life before teaching it in quotes to my children, I noticed some subtle shifts started happening in my daily life. And as I noticed shifts happening in my life, I also noticed these powerful shifts happening in my relationship with my daughters. And that was my aha moment. I was like, ah, there it is. This, I don't need to teach them. I'm being more mindful and just modeling it. And all of a sudden, our relationship started being just a little more deeper, our connection was deeper, our communication was more, um, was richer. And um, so that's, I, I started really getting excited about it. And what excites me most is the informal mindfulness practices that we do on a daily basis, and allowing that formal sitting meditation practice to be scaffolded by the daily living, the informal practices. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that because, you know, mindfulness and meditation, I feel like are oftentimes, you know, just lumped together in the same category of like mindfulness meditation. And you're trying to, you know, figure out if someone's referring to, you know, sitting, sitting down on a cushion and, and doing, you know, a, an eyes closed meditation session, or whether they're talking about practicing just mindfulness throughout their, um, throughout their day-to-day -day lives. So what were, what were some of the differences in terms of the benefits that you noticed uh, from when you started practicing mindfulness versus just traditional meditation? Yeah, so what happened is um, the daily living mindfulness, I started incorporating small habits into my life, right? So um, one of the first things I did was I downloaded an app that would ding at every two hours just to calm that monkey mind that we have that you know that mind that goes from branch to branch to branch and just to bring it back into that pre present almost like if you can um, visualize an hourglass that middle part of the hourglass that's where I'm staying present and attentive so how did I do how did I do that well when I was filling up my water bottle for example I would take those deep breaths when I, I started doing this um, frequently, when I was driving and I would stop at a stop sign or a red light, that was my cue to stop, to pause, take those deep breaths. And I was just activating my prefrontal cortex instead of and taking that, um, that pressure away from my, the back of my brain, the amygdala and resting that and just zeroing in on my, that parasympathetic system, right? The rest and digest. So I started including a lot of those daily uh, practices throughout the day, the breathing, practicing my pause. And then what I noticed, I noticed a huge shift in my sitting meditation practice, the formal practice. When I sat, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says, no mud, no lotus. So we need to get, um, go, get through that mud, the, the daily life, the tasks to do's, the planning, the ruminating, the worries that we have. We need to get through that in order to get to the lotus, that rich, the richness. So what I found was the sitting practice, I was able to get in deeper, quicker. So for me, that 
daily mindfulness pausing that I did built a sense of, um, it was almost training my brain so that I was able to get in deeper in my meditations, in my sitting practice. And you also mentioned that the mindfulness really changed your relationships with your children. What can you talk to me a little about what you noticed there? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's this um, Buddhist story about the, um, the second dart. Have you heard about that story? You're going to have to remind me. Okay, I'm going to remind you. So things that happen, the events that happen to us, that's the first arrow, that first. And when that first arrow hits, so for example, I fall and that's the event. Then the second arrow is the... Um, the things that happen after in the mind, right? So the things that happen are things like, oh, um, why did I fall? I'm embarrassed that I fell. I should have looked where I was going. Oh my God, everybody's watching. These are the second arrow, third arrow, fourth arrow, fifth arrow. These are all the darts that happen. So um, for example, with my daughters, I come home, they haven't emptied the dishwasher right? The first stage is that reaction. You know, that reactionary brain that, that says, I cannot believe how you forgot to do empty out the dishwasher again. So they, I, you know, that complaining, the angry brain starts. What I noticed over time is there are four stages. And the second stage of it was, as soon as I got a little bit more mindful, I started noticing this realization that, oh, I've been hijacked, that limbic hijack. I've been hijacked by my limbic brain. Can't help but get irritated and frustrated. I'm not as angry, but I can still feel myself grumbling and being irritated, keep telling and retelling the story over and over again. Then the third stage is as we become more and more mindful, we can feel the reaction rising like this, this hot bubble rising, but we don't act it out. It's like just that, oh, I can feel that, the inner body awareness of it. Oh, I feel it coming up. You can feel the irritation, but then we, the reminder is there saying, what was my intention? What is my intention? for the connection that I want with my daughters or my partner or my family, whoever that may be. And that piece comes in. And then the fourth stage is, oh, doesn't matter. I will be mindful while I empty out the dishwasher. And that is my time with myself. So there's these four stages that happen during the course of the practice. And we just get deeper and deeper into it. And what, what it sounds like you're, you're talking about there is like, you know, in, in psychology, they talk about like, you know, where there's the, the stimulus, right? That there's some external event. And then people think, people tend to think that that stimulus is what caused their internal reactions. But really, as you're alluding to, I think, as, as you know, it's sort of explained in, in this Buddhist uh, second arrow, where it's like, really, there's this space in between, there's this gap between the stimulus and your reaction. And so, so it's like the, the stimulus is occurring, say, you know, I was just using this example the, the other day on the podcast, where it's like, say your boss yells at you, you're, you know, and, and then you feel bad and then, you, you know, you feel terrible about yourself. 
the boss isn't, your boss isn't causing you to feel terrible about yourself. That's the stimulus. And then you're making certain internal representations, which is then leading to that experiencing feeling terrible. Yeah, there's a beautiful quote by Viktor Frankl, um, and he writes it in his uh, book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, I believe. He's a psychotherapist. He uh, survived, um, he was survived the Holocaust. And he says, um, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And within, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but within that space is the is within that space lies our freedom and that freedom is is the choice it's the choice to choose freedom within that space so when stimulus happens there's this this react this something happens this react between the part where we react we have this space where we can pause and say is this the best thing for and there's another layer in it and to really do some inner work because there's more to mindfulness than just stopping and breathing, right? There's a little bit of inner work. Wow, what, what is it inside me that brought about this reaction? Why am I feeling so angry, irritated, and frustrated? What, what else is triggering me? And one of the things we notice is through mindfulness, we will notice our habitual, um, our habitual patterns of behavior, right? Habitual patterns of behavior that we we have road rage or, you know, we're always frustrated with the person in front of us at Starbucks that's not moving fast enough. So what is that? What causes that? And can we allow ourselves just to be, just to be present with that feeling of discomfort and move towards that edge of discomfort? So you're with with mindfulness, we're always moving to that edge of discomfort. So the mindfulness has two wings. One is um, the wing of mindfulness, of awareness. What's going on here? What's going on underneath this feeling? And then the other wing is the wing of compassion. Can I bring compassion to myself as I go through this feeling? Okay. So then in terms of, you know, when you're, when you're becoming more aware of these sort of, um, you know, these sort of the, this sort of space in between stimulus and response, how do you go about then sort of, uh, you know, deciding in your mind as, as mindfulness, it sounds like is sort of increasing the, the resources that your mind has in terms of choosing, you know, which, which action or which, which thought maybe to indulge, how do you go about sort of, uh, I don't know, deciphering, deciphering through that and figuring out then what, what to actually do? Yeah, so um, that's a really, that's, that's a powerful question because uh, we don't just fall into mindfulness, right? We go in it with intention. Like, what is really my intention here? So when we wake up in the morning, it's like, I might say, what is my intention with um, how do I want my relationship to look? What what do I want my relationship to look like with my daughters as they get older, right? As they turn into adults. So what does that relationship look like and how do I want it to be? So that's my intention. That's my, my pathway. 
So with mindfulness, it's um, where your attention goes, where your intention lies, right? So when we choose how we're going to respond, that gives us that, that space to say, am I going to choose the trait that I'm feeling right now, this anger, irritated, uh, overwhelmed trait, or am I going to choose the state that I want to be in? So moving from trait to state, because we often, how many of us know people that are always angry, always irritated, right? So that's, that's kind of become their state. Is, and when I said at the beginning, how can I be kind to myself, right? How do I show up as myself in my, uh, my future self? So where do I want, what do I want my state to be like at the end of this conversation or at the end of this argument or at the end of this interaction? Okay. And that helps us choose our response. So it sounds like something that, that each person kind of has to figure out for themselves what, what they really want, the, the outcome of situations or, or what kind of what they want to, um, what they want to bring and um, show up as in the world, for lack of a better, lack of better terminology. Yeah, because, um, you know, one of the, one of the things about mindfulness is being present in this moment, right? And I, I remember, um, I, I often say this to parents, but um, when my daughter was young, she said to me, she was having her first play date. And I said, okay, well, um, time flies when you're having fun. And she immediately stopped and looked at me. She was about four. And she said, so I shouldn't have fun because time will fly. But what with mindfulness, what, because it does fly, right? As we're going through our day, if we're not present, then all of a sudden, before we know it, it's dinner time. And where has the day gone? And before you know it, the week has gone. Where did, where did we spend our moments, right? Our rich, sweet moments. And so being really present to the moment, or um, there are so many opportunities during a day to be present in those moments, right? Brushing your teeth. Um, one of the questions I ask is, uh, how many people are in the shower with you, right? When we go to take a shower, you know, the boss is there or the computer emails are there that we have to respond to. What you said to somebody two days ago is there in your brain, right? All these people are in the shower. Can we just be present in that moment? And how, how much more would you feel like, ah, this is my rest. This is my pause. How much better would we feel? I'm sure, a lot better. I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> that that uh yeah it reminds me of a, a past uh, past podcast guest who's talking about kind of our, our multiple selves and how it's like there's all these different voices in our head and it, it can become so so challenging and and so confusing. You know, as you're saying, it's kind of like the the boss the conversation you're having with the boss, the, someone else. And it's just like, yeah, there, there's, there's too many people in the shower. You need, need to get them out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of your guests and um, I, 
one thing that struck me was he, he was, um, I think, frozen before he was going to do a dance or something. And, and he just stopped, took a breath and felt that embodied feeling. Because a lot of times our, our mind, our brain is disconnected from our body, right? Our body is here, but our brain is everywhere else in the world, wherever it takes us. And we, we, unless we take control of it and lasso it back to our body and really feel that embodied feeling of what am I really feeling here? Then we can break our, our triggers and our patterns of behavior that don't serve us. Got it. So tell me about teaching. Uh, so you teach mindfulness to both parents along with children. And I'm really curious to hear just about, you know, from, uh, you know, a child's brain, you know, what, what mindfulness can do and, and how that can affect their behavior and probably, uh, you know, future behavior going forward as they move, as they emerge into uh, adulthood. Yeah, I actually just, I, I see it as a life skill. Um, it really slows down and brings this awareness um, in them. So I run uh, children's workshops and I always integrate an art component to it. There's a um, mindfulness arts and crafts and games book on my website. You can download it for free. And that those are all the activities that I've uh, I've done the, all of them with kids that I've worked with. And of course, there's so many more. There was a summer camp that I was running and there was a, a young boy there and he was about 13. And at the beginning of the week, he was like, oh, I wanna do this. And then at the end of the week, he came up to me and he's like, Jane, you know what? I never thought I would be into this mindfulness stuff, but I really like it. And we had gone down to the beach and made the mandalas. And so what it brings in them is this awareness of the other person that they're, that they're playing with or might be teasing. And it brings an awareness because we talk about self-compassion and compassion for the other. And it also brings them an awareness of, you know, when I'm angry, it's my alarm part of the brain that's going like that's just going out of control so my smart part of the brain the prefrontal cortex which is how i explain it to them my smart part of the brain has the capacity to say to the alarm part of the brain it's okay i'm safe i'm okay take and how do we access this smart part of the brain it's by taking those deep breaths slowing our systems down and going, okay, what's happening? What's happening right now? And the other thing, you know, in the world that we live in with um, all the digital technology, the phones, the games, what it does for them is when they go out to play and having gone through mindfulness and being aware that, you know, the trees might be talking to you, the flowers might be bowing down to you and saying, hello, welcome. And it really brings that awareness as well. And it brings the awareness of, I can be kind to myself. And when I do feel my feelings, it's okay. It's okay to feel those feelings. I don't have to squash them down. So it sounds like you're, you're teaching these kids probably 
to be better, to have better emotional regulation skills than most adults can even have, right? Absolutely. Have you ever heard of brain photobiomodulation before? Photobiomodulation involves red and near-infrared light energy being absorbed by the mitochondria in various tissues in the body, including the brain, which is packed full of mitochondria. Some of the benefits of brain photobiomodulation include enhanced mitochondrial function, increased blood flow, increased cellular energy, reduced inflammation, neuroprotection, and neurogenesis and synaptogenesis the growth of new brain cells and new connections amongst those cells. This ad was sponsored by Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro LLC. Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro LLC is an applied neuroscience company bringing premium neurohealth coaching and targeted neuromodulation services individualized to each client's unique neurophysiology. Check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com to learn more. Is there a certain age in which children kind of have start developing the capacity to regulate their emotions or, or be mindful of what's going on internally? Like, have you found a certain, certain age or level of maturity that they need to be at? So I, when I've, when I've taught kids from the six to nine age group, and then from the nine to 12, and then the teen, teen groups, um, the six-year-olds are able to really process, oh, okay, I can breathe. I, I feel better when I take, take a breath. But the awareness of how I am to another comes about at the age eight, nine. Just from my experience, I don't know what the neuroscientists say, but um, from my experience from the eight, nine age group, they start really focusing on, oh, okay, um, I can, when I say this, I'm seeing how it affects the other person, or I can see how my words might not have landed that, that well. Um, there's a balloon game in that mindfulness craft book that I talk about, where we were just, kids love balloons, we're, you know, um, volleying the balloons up in the air, and if you notice initially when kids play games, they always wanna win. So the purpose of this game that people can play at home is, you know, let's see if we can all collaborate and keep this balloon gently in the air. And so it's like a, it's like a partnership, a relationship, right? Research now shows collaboration goes farther than competition. Interesting. So it's, it's kind of like first, the children have to kind of develop the capacity to, to be aware of how their own internal states are, are functioning. But then once, once they develop some of that capacity, then they can start seeing how, how their actions and their states or behaviors are affecting others. Yeah, they first get the, the words, right? So like Dan Siegel calls them the limbic system the downstairs brain. This is the part of the brain where, okay, everything works. It's like the kitchen, the bathroom. So we eat, we digest, we breathe. And we also, that's the fight, flight, freeze response. So the alarm part of the brain is operating. So they start, they start learning the words. Oh, okay. That was my, that was that alarm part of the brain. 
but my smart part of the brain, I can access it. I do have capacity. So, oh yeah, my smart part of the brain told me to breathe. So when they use the glitter jars that we make, they can watch their, their emotions in the glitter jar. Oh, okay, that's calming down. So they, can, so they start using the language. But for parents, for example, with young uh, kids, babies, they can start learning how to breathe from, day, from very young, two-year-olds. You put a stuffy on their stomach and you watch their belly breathing and they can see that, you know, they get into the habit and the practicing that pause and that breath. And I don't know if, if you specifically have, have tracked kind of the, any of the, the children that you've worked with as they've emerged into adulthood, or if you're aware of any of the research, if there is any research that has tracked kind of that progression, I mean, I would assume that that's got a result, like developing those kind of mindfulness skills at a young age has got to put those children like so far ahead, you know, in terms of, of as they get into adulthood, I would think they'd, they'd be much better suited for the real world in terms of relationships, holding down a job, school, like it seems like everything would be, would be a lot improved. Are you, are you aware of much research surrounding that? You know, I, I, I haven't tracked personally, but what I have, um, I've looked at the research between anxiety and teens and um, teens going through therapy, even adults going through therapy um, and adding that mindfulness component to it, their ability to, to um, calm themselves down and really be present in their relationships and their communication is vastly improved rather than just therapy itself. So when we add that component of mindfulness to it, it really does help them. And we know there's lots of research on um, kids who are athletes and they practice mindfulness. It, it just helps them be more focused, more present, more, more aware in the, in the work they do. And in terms of like the, the timeline here, you know, I, I'm aware of like the, oftentimes it's like the standard, like the, the eight week mindfulness-based stress reduction course. That's kind of just the, the format. Um, but in terms of, you know, clients that you've worked with both maybe children and adults, uh, how, how long do you start, you know, how long does it take to start seeing uh, for people to start seeing real significant changes in, you know, in, in how they relate to themselves along with the world around them? So I'll say this based on my experience, and I've run uh, quite a few groups on mindfulness-based stress reduction, and currently I'm running two groups that are 12-week-long mindfulness programs, but for the eight-week program, I start noticing changes at the fifth and sixth weeks, and I can say this clearly with no hesitation. I've had, I've had People come in to the mindfulness classes at the beginning on the first week going, oh, I, I was so stressed. This I'm just here. I don't know what I'm going to get out of this. I don't know what this is about, but I just don't know what to do anymore. And I feel so much baggage. By about the fifth week, they come in and we do a, four, a fifth week kind of a evaluation, feedback. How are you feeling now? And at that time, they say, 
I feel like, do you remember when I used to come in feeling so heavy? I feel like I'm so much lighter. I've left all the baggage at, at your front door. And it's like, I'm just feeling so much lighter. So I, I start noticing it at the fourth, fifth, sixth week. And this is, with a caveat, is if they've been doing their, their mindfulness homework that we give them. It also makes me think about, you know, in terms of like neuroplasticity, which is kind of what's going on here, right? Where it's like, you're, you're harnessing the brain's ability to, to change and rewire itself through, through mindfulness in this case. And, you know, children obviously don't have, like, they're, they're still forming all of those pathways and connections. And, and they're, you know, I feel like more, I mean, there's that we know in the research, there's more neuroplasticity, their, their brains are more plastic and malleable than adults. So I wonder, I wonder just like how, how much, if, if this kind of uh, work has even a more profound and powerful effect on, on their brains compared to adults. Yeah, there has, I don't, I don't know if there's been much research done on, on children's brains per se from the last time I looked, um, but I'm going to definitely follow it up for the next time I'm on here, but um <laughs> what I often tell them is, you know, you have more neurons in your brain than stars in the universe. So you can constantly fire and wire, and I forget who said that, but um, fire and wire the neurons together. And for adults, um, we were firing and wiring typically the same neurons together, but with mindfulness, they can choose a different path. And that neuroplasticity really plays that role to, to be a little different today, right? Say yes to something else today, be a little more uncomfortable and, and check in with what's going on, what's the weather like inside today. But with kids, oh man, it's the field is wide open. Right, right. That was what I was trying to get at. Exactly. How about in terms of like just lifestyle things in terms of like the people's nutrition or exercise, sleep, um, do all of these things have a role in terms of people's ability to kind of cultivate their mindfulness abilities? So different, different, um, it's like a snowball effect, right? So you start uh, bringing mindfulness into your life and you start feeling a little bit better about yourself because you're like, oh yeah, I know I did notice the trees today, right? I, I was on, on a um, group call yesterday and we were talking about coping with loss. And one person said, oh, you know, I, I just feel so sad and depressed when I think of this. But then I realized that, oh, I, I did have the opportunity to walk through a corn maze. And that brought, that brought some lightness in my heart. So we bring that into our life. So we start because, you know, we say that um, for, every, for every negative thing that, that we say or do to ourselves or somebody says to us, we need five positive things, right? So we do this one positive breath that we take and we notice something else and we, we start bringing that into our lives. And guess what happens? We start feeling better about ourselves. And when we feel better about ourselves, we might start eating better. The other way might work too. Oh, I'm exercising more. I'm eating better. Oh, let me sit down for five minutes, right? So it's like, um, 
it's like a to and fro situation, a yin yang. It 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 just kind of melds together. Right, right. So in terms of like you know, as we kind of look towards the future, and you know, obviously mindfulness, I feel like you know has really exploded at least in in Western society within I don't know the past like five to ten years. I feel like there's just been this huge you know media um, you know presence of of you know, mindfulness and meditation, as we kind of look towards the future, how, how would you see mindfulness being kind of ideally incorporated into our society, maybe in, in certain ways that haven't, that aren't being done yet, or just if you were, if you were to be able to kind of play God and, and kind of, you know, do whatever you wanted in terms of getting mindfulness, wherever it needed to go, what, what would that look like to you? This is, um, so I think a lot about this because mindfulness has become a buzzword. And do you remember the days when seatbelts weren't necessary? And, and, you know, we're going to an age where by 2030, I would say that mindfulness will become our proverbial seatbelts, right? It will just be a part and parcel of our lives. What I would like to bring a little bit of caution to is we live in, in a world where we're constantly going for something. And I would love to caution people to say, you know, I don't want to, to, to kind of choose how we use mindfulness, like mindfulness not to be more productive, mindfulness not to be more focused at work so I can produce more, right? but really bring mindfulness into our lives so that we're increasing our, our relational capacity with each other. Our, we're being more compassionate, self-compassionate, kinder to ourselves, to those around us, to nature itself, right? So bringing that part of it. And, you know, when, when we see um, politicians argue with each other, I just wonder what kids look they look and they say, oh, but we're supposed to be kind, right? And that that mindfulness isn't there, that mindfulness communication isn't there, that, that ah, you are me and I am you interchange isn't there. So I'm really wondering whether we can just broaden it a little bit, deepen it a little bit, and really bring that essence of mindfulness into it, into our lives. I, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's very hard to, to hate another person or to, to really um, be just so against their, their views. If, if you're able to actually take a step back and, and try to do your best to understand like where they're coming from it becomes a lot easier. I feel like to, to get along with people and probably resolve a lot of the conflicts that are currently going on in our world probably would, would, uh, would benefit a lot from from those leaders, world leaders and politicians learning mindfulness skills. Well, Shaheen, we're uh, coming up onto the end of the show, um, but for people who you know want to get started with mindfulness or find out about um, your, your work, connect with you, where, what sort of resources would you direct them to? Well, send me, send me a, uh, an email, go on my website, it's mindful-changes.com or follow, follow me on Instagram 
at mindful-changes4 with the number 4U. And I'm sure you'll have it in the show notes. Yes. If I've, if I've moved a dash here or there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We will have yeah, that. Yeah, you'll find me. Mindful Changes in Vancouver. Yeah. Great. Great. And for those listeners who enjoyed the show, um, I'd well, at first, I'd highly recommend you guys go check that out. And if you guys enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. You can also shoot me a DM on Instagram if you have any comments, questions, any suggestions for the show, any guests that you'd like to see on the show in the future. Go ahead and shoot me a DM on Instagram at Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And subscribe, like, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you listen to it on, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other major platforms, we are on them all. So Shaheen, I wanted to really thank you for coming on the show and sharing all of your, your knowledge and expertise with us today. Thank you, Toby. Loved being here. Awesome.